0: You're listening to the Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am.
1: Good morning, guys. Welcome to the Perth Property Show. My name's Trent Fleskins, your host as always. This week, we are talking planning law and we have got Perth's number one planning lawyer in the room. It is Craig Wallace from Lavin. Craig, thanks so much for coming in, mate. I'm happy to share. Craig, I think it's important for everyone listening, uh, we will have Tanya Steinbeck on in the next couple of weeks, Kath Hart, we've just had David Airy, Daniel Davison's coming in soon. You're just as important a player in the industry these days in terms of property and planning, law, a lot of sophisticated developments get up and get going because of you. So I want them to know who you are, but in knowing that, I want them to understand how you got to where you are today. Where do you start? You obviously got a bit of an accent.
0: I do, I do have an accent. It's a bit of a jumbled up accent, Trent. My start is varied extremely varied Scottish parents emigrated to South Africa in the 70s God knows why I uh, was born there educated there uh, qualified there within two weeks of qualifying I moved to London lived there for almost 10 years while I was in London I fell literally uh, into a administrative law team doing planning and just fell in love with it my journey
1: in a planning law context started there and how does the planning space over in London compare to here
0: well it's very similar right so um The UK and most common law jurisdictions, including Australia, share a lot of the the same mechanics. There's a a very common thread between all of them. The only difference is the content that you have to tack on. And planning law is, uh, is very context specific. So although we have the same mechanics, the content that fills the mechanics are varied from country to country, state to state, local government to local government.
1: Yeah, just like here, obviously, right? It's, right. it's It's a different space. Obviously, the mechanics would work pretty similarly between Western Australia and Victoria, but the content, the way that we classify our zoning, the way we allow people to push forward at different levels of density obviously have their own mechanisms but at the end of the day we're all coming off the same basis is what you're saying exactly right uh, look, uh, things like london i'm not sure if people have seen on youtube or this the videos to see on uh, on the tv of for example all the way through belgravia and mayfair and these sort of places all the basement Levels mm. coming through, I don't know, if have you ever seen all that stuff in the last decade or so, the crazy, because obviously you can't build up in London, all the historical heritage buildings, people are building two, three, four levels down in their basements, putting pools below level. It's amazing to, to see, right? There's a lot it of disputes is. there. Well, there are. Uh, and before my time, uh, there was it was an entirely different scenario.
0: So I was in London in the back end of the 2000s into 2010. And in those days, I didn't do one subdivision. Not yep. a single one. It was all <laughs> Brownfield Town Centre Regeneration. So it was very different to what you find here. But you're right. The need that arises from a, an increasing population in a place that is highly constrained in terms of built form, you find that innovation, right? So um, you, you find people boarding up hallways to create multiple bedrooms in a Victorian terraces. You, know, you, you find that. So I'm not surprised that, um, you know, that people are going down. The roof extension uh, was a very familiar thing. Into uh, the attic. Into the attic. Yep. Oh, it's a very familiar thing. So it's um, something that I did a lot of when I was in the UK. And if I ever see another dormer window, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it's...
1: A Lux window, yeah. No,
0: <laughs> 100%. It's, it's, but uh, yeah, the basement thing is quite...
1: It's an innovative thing, but how expensive. Oh, we're talking millions of dollars, right? But this is millions of dollars that would turn a $10 million house into a $20 million house townhouse right so the, the numbers in london are just next level and that's why look it wouldn't work here in western australia we don't need it to work in western australia but a place like london as you said when you're constrained so much in population and built form height well there is only one way to go if you need more space in that's places right. like this we can't just knock down an old terrace block and turn it into a apartment building like you want to be able to do but struggle to do anyway in western australia it's just not going to happen in london and we move into you. You move into Perth, I guess.
0: Yeah, I think it was twenty, just before twenty ten. There was a significant property constraints at the time, if I recall. Although, I do recall landing here and thinking I was coming to a, a rural backwater from London, and then figuring out pretty quick that in a planning context, you're dealing with two, three, sometimes thousand lot subdivisions, and I I couldn't quite believe it when I first saw it. So the scale of development at the time was was something to behold. Falling into town planning in, in Perth was an easy thing. It just uh, it took a little bit of a, a change of tack in relation to instead of thinking about brownfield sites, constrained sites, contaminated sites, you're looking at pristine, environmentally sensitive considerations as a consequence. So it was
1: very different. Good segue into what it is you do every day now. The first question I guess we need to ask is, why do we need a planning lawyer, right? We've got planning consultants. We've had Bianca Sandrian from Urbanista talking on the podcast before about SAT and JDAP and how planning consultants will generally help us with anything above a triplex, getting that through council. Yeah. You're the next level, right? My understanding from my side is, as an extension of planning consultants, you have planning lawyers that really take it to the next level of the service you need to, to help get things through planning.
0: The next level is quite generous. It's another level. It's not. I don't think it's um, it's better, higher. And I say that with respect to to lawyers, but to everybody else that's in this industry, right? So we are consultants, fundamentally, and consultants that that try and do things that we uh, have experience in, uh, that we love. What we do, however, is see opportunity in words, if that makes sense, right? So our training teaches us how to effectively interrogate words, what they mean. Planning framework. Planning frameworks, uh, statutes, how they derived, how they should be interpreted how terms should be defined, things like that. So we look at the words, see the opportunity in the words, and then understand two things. One, risk is a... Can we get this approved? Can we get it approved? And reward. So there's a there's a value proposition. Can we maximise our outcomes? Yeah, so there's a value proposition in what we do. So from a, an initial perspective, what a planning lawyer would do is effectively interrogate words in a way that might give a client a developer a planning consultant some comfort in relation to the approach they take initially secondly maybe defending that approach and defending that approach uh, with initial decision makers local governments jdaps uh, and potentially taking on, taking it on appeal uh, in scenarios that it warrants that right so we do that but we're also advocates advocates in a in in the context of being able to deliver a message sell the opportunity and sales is a hard word but um, and generally speaking it's, it shouldn't be what lawyers do, but quite often it's the case when you have a limited amount of time, the opportunity to effectively ventilate the reasons and the justification for the opportunity that you're wanting a decision maker to understand, it helps if you have a have somebody that's that's comfortable Doing that, and invariably, there are lawyers out there that, uh, that are more comfortable than others doing it.
1: The way that it was explained to me when Bianca first introduced me to you many months ago was that we're going to need some heavy hitters in the room for this one, Trent. We need someone who can very effectively argue our position at JDAP. We're going to need someone who is going to be able to sell this project not from a design perspective, but from a planning perspective to be able to convince the j that this is something that can be approved within their discretion. And that's where I think, especially on the larger projects, I'm assuming you're much more involved in medium to large size projects rather than the smaller projects because one... It's pretty hard to afford a planning lawyer when you're doing a triplex, and to justify that—that's pretty obvious, right? And the larger it gets, the more complex it gets. The more of a coherent argument needs to be put together towards whoever the stakeholder is—Jade Ups—that these places to be able to explain to them why this project should be approved and can be approved.
0: yeah and I think sometimes uh, what most decision makers are looking for is an understanding that they can do—they can make it a, a decision in a particular way and make that decision in a way that means they can't be challenged or challenge is unlikely, right? So that's an important thing for us to do. So in terms of what we do, we can do that. We try to do that. If we don't do that, then we've pretty much failed. Mm. All lawyers, however, are consultants. We're consultants, and um, we are effectively beholding to the value proposition. If it doesn't make sense from a value proposition to incur uh, a significant fee, uh, then you don't need it. So the reward has to justify the means. So this well, is that's for any consultant, right? Yeah, exactly right.
1: Now, I've seen you operate in advocacy for childcare center developers, for apartment developers, for land developers. So it goes across all of these spectrums where there's obviously a little bit of complexity in how these can be approved. Every time I've seen you operate, there's been some very coherent arguments that are nearly irrefutable. And obviously, a lot of it comes from uh, simply having very good argumentative skills, but also case law too, right? So... I don't expect my planning consultant to be able to reference case law when trying to explain to a JDAP or SAT how and why this development should be approved. That's where I think you take it to the next level. All right.
0: Well, to be fair, I think most consultants have a handle on case law. I think that's right. You go to a planner for planning advice. You go to a lawyer for legal advice. If you're interpreting cases, then a lawyer is the place to go. I don't think there's any magic to it myself. However, there may be something to
1: to that. I would argue with you, Craig, that (laughs) there's certainly another level that comes in here when we're looking at a childcare centre and there is a framework from planning that the, the city planners have decided that this box is a green, this box is a red, this box is a green, and this is a red. And because of that, we're actually in the mind to recommend refusal. Yeah. Well, you then can't really refute that from a planning consultant perspective, but you can get your planning lawyer in to go, actually, based on these cases and based on this experience, there's no reason why the, the JDAP cannot recommend approval today, for example. And that, that's something that I only see someone at your level providing those services for. That I want everyone listening today to understand that if you're not getting the outcomes or it's not an outcome that seems to be available through a planning consultant or just on your own spinning wheels in your own silo, that there is an avenue here to talk to very experienced people in the planning law side because everything, as you said, the fundamentals of all this comes back down to law, right? There's policies that sit on top of law. Someone like yourself, Craig. And and I think you're being very humble today in talking down the difference and the influence you have in this industry when it comes to being able to... Look, let's be honest, it's not getting any easier. The red tape continues to get thicker and thicker every year in planning. City planners and councillors seem to get more and more obstructionist every single year, reaching far and far into, for I don't know what reason, slow down progress in Western Australia when it comes to providing critical services, critical supply of property. And if we don't have our own heavy hitters, our own heavyweights in the room, sometimes there is just no hope at all in getting these to, in these approved. And I think you've been the difference for a lot of projects that I've watched both closely and from afar, you get over the line. I'm pleased to hear you say that. Most
0: of my firm were pleased to hear you say that too, <laughs> yeah.
1: Trent. But uh,
0: there's there's one of the things that I think makes a difference, And as you were talking, I was just thinking about the magic that is planning law because planning law is just words on a page, right? So you've got statutes, you've got planning frameworks, words on a page. But the inherent beauty of administrative law and how that works is that there's, generally speaking, always discretion. Now, discretion is something that delivers opportunity and magic. And it's in that that gives me great pleasure, right? So it's that uh, floats my boat that gets me to the office every single day. And it's in that that I find the drive to try and deliver outcomes, right? So when you're talking about a specific project, a piece of work, or a a piece of advocacy, or, or whatever it is... One of the things that rolls through my mind is the available discretion in the words and trying to convince somebody else, a local government decision maker, that's the right thing to do. And when you get that right thing, Man Alive, it gives you such pleasure to see it actually built and constructed. My children have a running joke about me driving around this town. Yeah pointing out all the things that I may have had some involvement in.
1: Well, this is where I'm going to, right? As a developer, I can clearly walk, drive around town and say, I developed that, I developed that, I developed that, right? As a planning consultant, they can say, well, I help get that through. And the same thing as a planning lawyer, the influence that you have on some significant projects. Now, I think the easiest one to talk to, I think everyone will, is going to see this come up, come up in the next few years. Tim Gerner has bought this site, is, right. is getting this developed in conjunction with the Costa Group. Bianca Sandry was involved in this. Lavin was involved in this. It's the Chellingworth site there where Bentley is on Sterling Highway. That property there, look, it had a significant zoning potential in the first place. But I'm pretty sure that you guys were able to get that approved for an extra five or so stories. The value created in that for the developer from a financial perspective is is obvious. But on top of that, outside of the, the spectrum of the planning framework, the value created to all of the public for future supply of apartments that the planning framework didn't really allow for, yeah. uh, I think we're all going to be thankful for in years to come when we're still way behind on our supply of infill product. It, that difference
0: was the planning side, right? You're absolutely right. And I think um, that's one of my, one of my inherent frustrations about decisions that, that are too conservative, right? So um, what are the things that we try and do? I know we try as planning consultants, developers, think about discretion in terms of maximizing opportunity. And Most of the time, the opportunity is considered to be financial or profit, Uh, but it's not really, right? It's not really. When you're adding height in an area that increases density in a very small area with a consequence that you don't have to put that density somewhere else, Mm. or it creates nodes of activity that will stand the, the, the test of time, or create interest that create legacy, it's those kind of things. It builds communities. It builds communities. It's yeah. those kind of things. And when you don't do it right the first time, you can't undo it. You can't you got undo it. 67 years You're, until you have another shot. You've at got it. a gener- its a generational opportunity. One of the things that's is the most exciting about this town, at this mo- moment in time, is that there are so many once-in-a-generation opportunities. I've never seen anything like it.
1: Yeah, and it's—it's it's a function of the age of the city, right? You go to London, as you spoke to, there's not a lot of breadth there for you to be able to make a big difference because the differences were made 200 and something years ago when a lot of these buildings were being built and then their heritage listed and then it's done, right? In Australia, especially in Perth, it's a city that's only 150 years old We've still got another couple of hundred years to get anywhere near where London is at in terms of how static that environment is. Right. In the meantime, all of that change, that, that chaos in there, there is opportunity within that to create legacy outcomes. And for the frustrating part, you look back in history, some of the most beautiful buildings we ever had in Perth don't exist anymore because of some really poor planning outcomes on, this, on the terrace back in the 70s, right? I got a really awesome Lost Perth book that has all the photos of some of the most beautiful buildings, you know, Citibank's building that used to be uh, one of the most beautiful buildings Perth's ever, ever had. That got knocked down back in the 70s. Half the stuff in, in Perth used to be a fantastic, beautifully designed building from 70, 80 years ago, not there anymore. Now, it's a concrete jungle. Uh, we have an opportunity in these times now moving forward with a lot of the rezoning, a lot of the urban infill to create new legacy items that will be around for 100 years that then get heritage listed because they're too beautiful to cut down. And that is the opportunity within the planning law framework, within the grey area, the interpretation that you speak to, to seek discretion, to create things that people can be proud of one day and not just run-of-the-mill stock.
0: You're absolutely right. And I, my, my office opens out to Elizabeth Key, right? Which some might say was a, could have been bigger, could have been better. But I look across at the Ritz Hotel and the, the apartment next door to it, it changes. I don't know, you, you may not have noticed this, but it changes color. Yeah,
1: it does. Yeah, with the, the bronze in it. Yeah. Uh,
0: and, and at various times of the day um, and into the evening, it is one of the most spectacular buildings. I mean, it's, I can sometimes find myself staring at it for, uh, for hours or well, maybe not hours, maybe in six-minute units. Yes, um, but so <laughs> but you, you know, charge yourself too. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. But it's also it's also one of those buildings that you go across the river into South Perth, and there in South Perth is the best view in this state, yep. right? Looking across at Elizabeth Quay. It's gonna it's it's something special. And is that it, it's the it was the courage to do that first up, um, but also in terms of the design, I think there's there was definite innovation in in relation to to that particular building. But you can see the appetite to do that everywhere
1: well let's talk about appetite right and these are the sort of buildings where they would qualify for the state development assessment unit it's a new unit that rita has brought into it in my opinion to essentially just go i'm sick of local governments even the jade ups give me the, the shits at the moment for projects that are significant enough i'm just going to make a call on this i'm sick of it mm-hmm. or at least there's a panel that i've appointed that's going to make a call on this and get and and push start getting some progress through Below that level, and, and, and look, and that and that's all well and good for your civic hearts and your Finney Group um, level developments, right? But below that level, there's a lot of projects that struggle on a daily basis through the JDAP process, mm-hmm. trying to avoid SAT and then get to SAT and spend tens of thousands of dollars on everyone's time trying to get something approved that in most other cities around the world would would not have any contention. And most of it, I guess, is something something to do with either traffic or height something like that right can you talk us through some anecdotes you had where you know people i assume would find just extremely interesting you know we've seen projects like yellow for example go through the absolute ringer over the last four or five years a lot of uh, very uh, intent views on both sides of the equation i think that's a great one to start with i'm sure you've got another couple of stories to tell us
0: well in terms of anecdotes i, th- I think well, i might just go back to the S D A U and the reason for it and planning reform i wouldn't catch the creation of those Mechanisms lightly, right? So they're not they're not responses to as extreme as the ones that you've identified, and I say that with respect, Trent. Um, the SDAU in particular was a COVID response. Uh, it was a COVID response that uh, figured out that the traditional JDAP environment may not deliver the outcomes that this state needed at a very, very uh, difficult time, and needed to be dealt with in a in a quicker way. The beauty of the SDAU process is that what it did was create greater discretion outside of planning frameworks through the inherent power that the WAPC has, right? So there was uh, an inherent genius in relation to that at the SDAU process. Uh, and it's not only state significant developments that um, were approved through that process. There were some others that were smaller. Anything scale. over 20 mil. Yeah, so it's, um, 20 mil doesn't buy you a lot in the no, state. It these days, yeah. right? So, it's, um, uh, so that's that. JDAP was a response, a planning reform response to projects being refused uh, at local government level um, through uh, political considerations. Childcare centers, for example, right? Childcare centers, I and a whole heap of things. Height. Height was a, a major contention in the western suburbs, and planning tries to deliver things um, with good sense and technical input. And unfortunately, sometimes that means you colour pieces of land that have t- historically not had that colour on them, right? So, Netherlands is a case in point. When you're upcoding significant parts of Netherlands, that have historically been... R10. R10, 1,000-square-metre blocks, with the potential to stick six, seven, eight apartments on them now, uh, that creates some angst and anxiety. And if we hadn't had JDAPs or a mechanism to unlock the, po- the politics of local government, we would have to have some difficulty. Now, the bu- the, the well, J- you'd have zonings that can never get fulfilled. Well, that's exactly it. And hence, the planning only works. Planning only works if the planning frameworks can be realized if they can't be realized through decision making there's no point in having them
1: yeah and obviously a lot of situations there where you know see a journal up for example they've got density framework across the city and then because the councillors weren't very happy with the outcomes instead of going back to wapc asking a new plan new plan Mm -hmm. of of where everything's going to be essentially just roll through a policy that backdoors their own intent to kill the density codes in the meantime it's and this is ridiculous the level of involvement ha- that politics has these days on planning. Yeah, and
0: uh, you know you, you speak about the yellow site. That was an interesting one and a very difficult one from a developer's perspective. A novel site, one that had a, an interesting zoning, one that could be developed and was supported predominantly from a land use perspective by the local government and uh, the local government office at officer level didn't didn't really have too much difficulty with the density, plot ratio, height aspect although there was there was some work to do there. But the, the, community, the community outcry there... It was it that was It was. It was, um, it was interesting. I and mean, there was um, there were certainly some interesting moments at site visits. When you're talking about communities and their homes, I don't sweat communities taking a, a stand. I think it's important. Ventilating your position and applying rigour to a decision is entirely appropriate. Uh, and um, it's, it's beholding on the, the developer team a consultant team, all of them, to win over a JDAP, win over the community to make sure that they understand that the concerns that they have uh, from any perspective, parking like shadow, high, parking, height, yeah. amenity, everything, uh, can be overcome. And historically, that's shown to, to happen, right? So there's a list as long as my arm of developments that you'd have community outcry about at JDAP to only define that five years down the track, when it's approved and developed and built, it's an absolute godsend. There's a Woolworths on Canning Highway,
1: yeah, that's a fantastic example of right. it was a place that otherwise would have, would have been struggling for years for amenity. That's right. And I remember the, the,
0: the JDAP meeting. The JDAP meeting was about five hours long. There were 30 community objectives you know, I for the developer in that, that regard, but it was a long and hard process. And in that matter, the, the JDAP acted with confidence and with courage, and they approved it. Mm. And now, looking at it, I drove past it this morning, uh, it's not only uh, a good-looking building, Uh, but it serves a a real community function. When I use it weekly, it's a good news story. Another story of courage, uh, and this is one that um, is perhaps a a sad story because driving through Applecross and the Canning Bridge Structure Plan area, notice that there are some significantly high buildings, right? Buildings that um, are future-proofed. Buildings that would last 50, 60, and wouldn't look out of place in 100 years. So those buildings were created as a consequence of a very courageous uh, structure plan developed by the city of Melville.
1: And the city of South Perth. And the city of South Perth, you're absolutely yeah. right. Two cities coming together, which is the one.
0: And highly, when, uh, in South Perth, you haven't quite seen that uh, realised yet, but what you saw was an appetite from a developer's perspective to build these things, to find the people to live in them, to make them work. They, they're actually fully functional buildings and, and will be there for a long period of time. But what we've seen over the last five years is a, an increasing community outcry, resulting in local government politics, elections, local governments, councils changing to effectively reducing height, mm-hmm. reducing the intent, reducing the opportunity in those those structure plan areas, and which is a bit sad and perhaps a little bit well unnecessary in the context of of what a planning framework is developed to do, which is to identify appropriate land use in appropriate areas, uh, and. To allow the market to regulate itself, which is which is all market driven. So you know, you don't developers don't build things unless
1: they make sense. That's exactly right. Innovation only happens at the curve of profit, and profit only occurs where there is a problem to be solved that you can solve. And the pro- problem there is obviously lack of supply at certain price points at certain products. Now, the, the problem with What happened, what you're speaking about there in terms of this nearly retributionary backlash and changes of councils where they're seeking to pull things back a bit is that it's all obviously location specific. There's a nimbyism about it all, right? It's not a broader based state viewpoint there where for every apartment that we can build on the foreshore around Canning Bridge, we're saving another hectare of land. Out in Banksia Woodlands area around Baldivis. That okay. should never have been developed in the first place. If we actually had proper pl- planning frameworks 20 years ago in these areas, maybe Baldivis and Byford never had to be built. Maybe we wouldn't have had to extend the freeways that extra bit, the train lines that extra bit, the water, the new police stations, extra hospitals we're going to need. All the taxpayer money they get spent to then duplicate, triplicate all these services out there rather than sharing them amongst existing services. Mm. Maybe Mount Lawley and Leaderville and Vic Park to a lesser extent wouldn't have died over the last five, six years and have to now resurge because there would have been critical mass of population in these areas based on the density of living like every other city around the world it's not a good thing that we are the longest city in the world is it you don't want to be an outlier like that
0: it's not a good thing no but i mean it's created a whole heap of opportunity for us all and it is what it is and that's driven by a planning framework idea that is over 50 years old right so the views in relation to why that happened or should have happened may have changed but i think it's definitely the view now that we need to think about density people living together and the consequence of that. Mm. Reducing things like cars. There's a whole heap of things that may need to happen and um, I'm not here to foretell the future, but we'd be missing a trick if we didn't help as consultants, as developers, in pushing the innovation envelope.
1: And it all starts with planning. Not needing cars comes from having density and comes from having enough people to support transport nodes that are good enough to not need cars, as an example. Even transitioning into electric vehicles, for example. Well, you only can do that when you've got the right facilities from a planning and design perspective to be able to allow people to charge their cars overnight, all these things. So all this stuff is going to be more complexity that we're Mm -hmm. going to need more support from planning law perspective, in my opinion, as it all starts to roll through. This
0: this is not novel, right? 20 years ago, when I was working in the London borough of Wandsworth or the London borough of Waltham Forest, both fairly obscure local government areas inside of the M25, in every single one of those, I recall a car-free development i.e. you couldn't have a car if you wanted to live there. Wow. And the parking was restricted on the street to stop you from doing it.
1: Don't you find that interesting though that it's exact opposite here where you must provide enough car parking yeah. to keep them off the street as right. if it's just a given that people are going to have cars, you must retain all parking yeah, well, yeah. and provide... 20 parking bays for x amount of people
0: complete antithesis right and even in our core negotiating car share arrangements before uber where you'd have a car with some people in the building could share 20 years ago 20 years ago (laughs) i mean these are i mean these are not new ideas uh, it feels
1: like they are to us they're not even we're not even there yet and that's the point is that it's quite ironic that you know you look at planning law here and it talks to uh, minimizing height or you know having height you absolutely have to cut your left hand off to get an extra meter of height or to have a couple of less bays for parking for example mm. whereas there are other parts around the world that are saying well look make it as high as you can because you're saving land out out in the bush yeah. or no any the less car spaces, the better we want to push people to not be able to have cars when they move in here and we want them to get on their bicycles we want them to get on their electric scooters get on the tram all these things right and it's the exact opposite here i find that fascinating how the logic is so flipped on its head i think there's a a logic in learning lessons from others right um and and well your elders and in a planning space places like london well Well, there are grandparents
0: well yeah and you know there is an inherent amenity in apartment living right so spain barcelona my brother-in-law lives in spain uh he lives in an apartment it's got swimming pools it's got green spaces he's got three levels in his apartment But it's an apartment. There are 80 of them. People don't miss the amenity. They have everything they need. There's lots of space. There's less cars on the road it's normal people people actually aspire for to to that kind of thing
1: it's exactly where vancouver went there was a study done about how perth and vancouver in the same space about 50 years ago and vancouver's gone down the path of less freeways less cars and more green space and perth's gone the other way and it's 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 so obvious when you compare the two cities can i move to a brand new topic sat explain to me how the process works why you would get to a SAT tribunal, how you would try and avoid that, and how a planning lawyer is involved practically on a daily basis in helping to prepare and win a case at SAT. Why do we get to that point in the first place? Is, right. we, is it always because we're trying to get something through that shouldn't be approved? No. No, that's not
0: right. The SAT process is effectively a, the, the mechanic that's set out in the back of the Planning Act. Right, So as part of the planning process... There's a a mechanism for creating planning documents, a mechanism for decision-making at a local government JDAP level, and there's also, right at the back, a review right, an opportunity for a developer to challenge a decision made. It's part of the process. That part of the process then goes to the, the tribunal. In my view, it doesn't make it harder. It's not antagonistic. It's not intended to be that. It's part of the process. In terms of that process, it's not one that's the sole remit of lawyers, not at all.
1: You don't need a lawyer to go you, to SAT and you be do properly
0: not, represented? You do not need a lawyer to be properly represented in the tribunal. And, and I say that with some reservation, because there are missed opportunities if you don't have the appropriate tools. And I'll explain. In the context of the tribunal, the tribunal is set up with a, an inherent desire to resolve disputes in a, an alternative way, without the need for a hearing. So they've reduced all formality, they've taken... Uh, most procedure out, you don't need to stand. The levels of formality that you see in a, in a Supreme Court or a district court or a magistrate's court wouldn't be found in it's a... It's more
1: accessible to your every man. Exactly
0: right. Yep. Uh, and, but one of the key functions of the, the tribunal is, is introducing mediation or compulsory conferences. And how does that work? So a mediation compulsory conference is a tool that um, is facilitated by a member. It's confidential. It's without prejudice. It puts the parties together in a room. It sometimes puts all interested parties together in a room, including other decision-makers that are relevant. So it could be a bushfire issue. It could be a, a main roads issue, a drainage issue. Biodiversity. All of those kind of things. Yeah. You could get all of the players in the room sitting and talking to each other. Just thrashing it out. Just thrashing it out. The purpose of a mediation is twofold. One is to figure out whether or not the parties can agree.
1: Are we going to get somewhere are at we some point get or are we wasting our time? And
0: if we can agree there's a, a provision of the tri- of the, the State Ministry of Tribunal Act which allows the parties, to, or one of the parties, to then reconsider their decision. So it's a fantastic opportunity to have a sit down with the decision maker to flesh out whether or not there's an opportunity for resolution. The second thing it does is that if that is not possible, it uh, reduces the number of issues that are in, in play. And that's important because if you are going to run a matter to a hearing, reducing the number of issues means that you can reduce the time you spend at a hearing, reduce the number of consultants that you need and effectively reduce the cost. As with all processes, the costs of a hearing, including the time cost, because it does take time to go from lodging an appeal to get to a hearing, have to be considered in the value proposition. Is it worth going all is this way? Is it worth going all the, the
1: time way? and therefore the money. Exactly. Right. What is the time and the money generally if someone was going to, let's say that I was not an idiot and I wanted to get a planning lawyer involved, which I would say that most people despite your views, should certainly consider always having your own heavy, because you're up against the SSO, right, at the end of the day, you're up against their lawyers.
0: Yeah, and if you're in a WAPC or a JDAP environment, you're invariably up against the the state solicitor's office, who are very experienced lawyers. So in those scenarios, you'd want to be represented. I'll come back to the point I made about missing an opportunity. Sometimes it is the case that the tribunal is the only place where you will find an objective consideration, non-biased interpretation of a particular provision that's never been done before. And the reason that you want that is to create effectively a piece of paper, a, a decision that uh, assists other decision makers. A precedent. A precedent. Now, one of the things that um, is inherently frustrating in a, in, in, a, in a WA context is that the right matters sometimes do not get the right hearing. And that might be because of they're resolved um, or that might be, and I've seen this, where a client is frustrated at the the outcome, or the the lack of progress, or the conservatism that's that's shown, and the value proposition doesn't doesn't um, warrant it.
1: I guess compromise, just compromise. Either they either go, look, we'll get rid of this apartment, or we'll make this smaller, yep. or we'll can it all together. That's it. Don't yep. see the value in going all the way to sat to possibly lose anyway.
0: That's it. So, uh, but um, what you lose then is the jurisprudence that arises from it. And sometimes the way you argue a case, and there have been a number of cases that have been argued in a way, including by lawyers, that haven't created the right kind of jurisprudence, the jurisprudence that could have could have resulted from a, a hearing. So there's an inherent utility in the tribunal in that regard. And I say that selfishly because it does help, it helps me uh, uh, in terms of delivering what I can for clients, but it also helps the industry in understanding with some certainty about
1: how decisions will be made into the future. Um so but you yeah. say as saying there's it's an opportunity there where you're tr- essentially you're trying to create something that the other lower avenues of approval being the local government or the JDAP or the WAPC uh, maybe don't have or don't believe they've got the parameters to approve something that you believe inherently should be approved but there is no precedent for approval you can go to sat and hopefully this one person making the decision is on your side. That's right, and that's the that's the magic, coming back to the magic of discretion, right? Discretion is
0: in the words. So the words create the opportunity. How the words are interpreted is important because it guides future decision making. And you will find that you will have conservative decisions and you will have decisions that create opportunity. What that does is creates a decision for the person that you are advocating to at a particular point in time. So they can choose the conservative or they can choose the innovative or the, the optimistic, mm. right? But you can tell them with some comfort that that's been done before. If you did it now, you're doing the right thing. Yeah, I just need you to be courageous.
1: There's courage on both sides. There's courage for the decision maker, but there's also a lot of courage for the applicant, the developer. Yeah, yes. Because as the developer, when you make that decision, if you're not getting the, answer, the outcome you need from a jade app or a, a city, then it is a significant time and cost, as we said, in position to get it properly too sat to then have a single person hopefully wake up on the right side of the bed that day and decide that they're going to be brave today.
0: That's right. But the process itself, in terms of the process of getting to a hearing, uh, how you program in terms of uh, setting up your experts and what they say, and experts are independent in the tribunal, there is an opportunity to to understand the merits proposition. So even if you took a a high... uh, a highly conservative view about everybody who would make a decision,
1: you'd still know whether or not there was some risk and whether or not the reward was worth it. It sounds like most people would still avoid this avenue, right? You think about Yellow yeah. as a the case there. They, they were in mediation for a couple of years there, trying to continually avoid a SAT decision, which is, I guess, I guess a final decision that you, it's hard. obviously you can't really repeal back from yeah. my understanding. They spent a couple of years there mediating with the JDAT members to finally get an outcome and the irony of it was, when I look at the plans, not much seemed to change from the start to the end, where it was eventually approved. I mean, that was a hard process.
0: Uh, and in terms of the justifications, I think there were there was some serious thought given by both sides, the respondent and the applicant, to the alternatives and the, the changes. And I think what you might not see in the plans is the justification that, lie, that lay behind it, right? There was a lot of work done from a consultant's perspective to justify those plans and the changes to those plans. Yeah. Uh, and the key to yellow was the change of the use that was causing the concern which is the car parking concern Mm. so as soon as it changed from a cafe to an office it changed the. how many people were going to be rocking up with the car that's right and once it changed that everything else was easy and that but the unfortunate thing was and this is what the developer and I, i don't know if this is plain from your reading of it but the developer in that regard, was trying to maintain the existing cafe. Well, of course, it's probably the over, most
1: popular cafe in Western Australia.
0: Over multiple mediations, over multiple reconsiderations, trying to justify why it could work, they would, the, the concerns in relation to car parking wouldn't resolve, and the only way to fix it was to change the use such that there would be no car parking in the street. Yeah, And it was as simple as, simple as changing the use.
1: We, I, mean, I find that ironic, because at the end of the day, that cafe exists in situ. Yes. It has significant parking issues already. People, including myself, have parked two blocks up in front of someone's house to go get a smoothie from that cafe in the first place, yet no one does anything about it now. Second, you want to put an application to throw some apartments on top of that existing cafe, essentially, with the Mm. same custom. Now it's a problem. And that's what I find totally difficult is that I think what the respondents or what the uh, opponents of this application were really doing is sitting in front of that as a cover for really just not wanting anyone blocking their view. Yeah, no comment. <laughs> uh, but you're, but you're from a planning framework, oh, you yeah. have to deal with the planning objections that are put in front of you, whether you believe that they're and that's genuine or not.
0: And that's it. And I think one of the things—I mean, it was an easy, easy solution. And unfortunately, the develop—the well, developer didn't want to make that easy solution. No, and so tried, tried trying to do the best. And tried for the really community. hard. And tried really yeah. hard not to.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. It was a, there was an inherent irony in the outcome,
1: right? Um, It'll be a worse off outcome for the community. We want the cafe. We don't want open. the cafe. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Craig, look, it's been a fantastic chat. I really appreciate some of those anecdotes and the colour you've added to the process of not only what it takes or why why you would need a, or not need a planning lawyer, but also what it takes to, I guess, bring something to a SAT and a JDAP hearing and the support you need. And, and from my perspective, from everyone listening today, if you're doing anything, a you know, level of complexity from a fuel station, a childcare center to apartments that have, will have you believe will have any objection from a community perspective and you need support from a planning side of things to actually justify what you're trying to achieve. And this is obviously quite sophisticated development we're talking here, where there are significant costs already. There are significant profits if you can get this through and then you're going to need some heavy hitters. My personal view is you're going to need a planning lawyer And there isn't anyone better in this state than Craig Wallace. And uh, I know he wouldn't be feeling very comfortable with me saying that, uh, given how how humble you are, Craig. But there's a reason I've got you in today. And a a very big thank you for having you in and sharing your time, which I know is very precious with uh, the thousands of people listening. So thank you. Thank you, Trent.
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburbs spotlights. Happy hunting!